So we are partway through a series that we're calling a Journey to Hope. Uh, and we're calling it that because it's based on the cantata that we're going to do uh, in just a couple weekends on Palm Sunday weekend. And you heard uh, one of the songs uh, just now at the offering, right on King Jesus. Uh, that's the song that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, on, on this journey to hope, though, we started with the call to faith. The beginning of the journey is placing our faith in Jesus. And the next week, we talked about a call to follow, about how we don't just place our faith in Jesus and move on, but we, we have to start to live in the way of Jesus and follow Jesus and how we live our lives. That's actually what it means to be a disciple. Last week, we talked about peace for the journey, about how when we are on this journey with Jesus, uh, we get a deep and abiding peace that's, that is uh, bigger than anything the world can give us. Uh, it's not circumstantial. It is uh, longer lasting than that. Uh, and today, we're talking about Jesus being king. And so what does it mean to be Jesus to be king? Uh, the, the song, Right on King Jesus, the original version, has a main refrain that is repeated throughout. It says, Right on King Jesus, no man can hinder me. Now, this song was an African-American spiritual. It was sung by slaves when they felt mistreated by earthly masters. And this was a song that would remind them that Jesus was their only true master, and nothing could take that away from them. So as we uh, want to look into this idea of Jesus being king, uh, let's first pray, and then let's see what God has to show us today. Will you pray with me? God, we acknowledge that you are good. You have given us uh, a new day and a good morning. We praise you, and we're glad to worship you with our Bethany family today. We ask right now, God, that you would come and speak to us through your word. Open up our hearts and our minds to hear what you're saying to our lives in particular. And give us the courage to respond to you today. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so Jesus being king... It's, it's a hard thing to start talking about because we, I think, deep down in us have something against the idea that there should be a king. I don't know, maybe it has something to do that we're a country that began as a, with a revolt against a country that had a king. Maybe there's a part of us that still have that uh, want to rebel against any kind of a king in us. But maybe it's also because, uh, especially in the last few decades, um, it seems like Every human ruler has, has let us down. I mean, anyone in a place of earthly, uh, any human in a place of authority, and we've come to realize that, that no leader is perfect and they all have flaws. And, and because of that, there's kind of an increased skepticism towards people with authority because we feel that they're going to use it for their personal gain and they probably don't have others' best interests at heart. And, and so just talking about Jesus being king, I think it has those obstacles. I think we should recognize it. But then I think we should press into it. I don't think we should ignore Jesus being king just because it's uncomfortable or it doesn't mesh well with our cultural language. I think we should learn what it means. And so if you look through the story of the whole Bible, actually, the story of God being king and him establishing his kingdom here on earth, that's, that's kind of the, that might be the biggest theme that's spread throughout all of scripture. So you can see this in the Garden of Eden. There, that doesn't use language of a kingdom, but you have the imagery there where there is a king that creates everything, and God, God is the king, 
He has his kingdom. It's the creation that he made. And then he, he makes humans and he makes us the stewards of his kingdom. Right? We're the caretakers of his creation. And the job of a steward is to recognize that the king is the only one that has the true authority. But it's to, to steward what the king has for him. That works really well until the stewards decide that they would rather be kings themselves, right? And then we know the story, the fall and devolving into chaos. And the rest of the story of scripture is a story of God trying to reestablish that kingdom, not because he needs people to uh, make him feel good about himself, but because he knows that that's what all of creation was created for. That's the kind of order to live under the perfect authority of an all-loving, all-powerful creator God who is king. And so we see that, that king uh, theme continue to spread through the Old Testament. And all the covenants that God makes with the people of, of Israel in the Old Testament, there, there is a sense that he is their king. Even in the covenant that he makes with Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai, that's the same kind of a treaty that was used in the ancient Near East to, uh, that was used between a king or a ruler and a group of people that needed protection and provision. And the way that kind of treaty worked is it's not a treaty between equals. It's a treaty between uh, someone who has a lot of power and people who have a lot of need. And so the king, our God, would covenant to protect and provide for the people and be faithful to them. And then the people, in response to that, would pledge their loyalty to him. They would acknowledge his authority and put their lives under that authority. Now, uh, as the story of the Old Testament moves on, the people of Israel decide that uh, other nations around them have human kings, and while they kind of like the idea of God being king, they would really like a human king too. And God, you know, it's interesting, he kind of meets them halfway, which I think is, is really neat. He says, you know what, a human king probably won't always go very well for you, but if you really want that, we can, we can work that out. The only agreement that you have to agree is, is that uh, the human king is going to be a representation that points to God being the most high king. And the first job of the king was to study the laws of God and to put themselves under God's authority. It's really interesting. And so even the kings in the Old Testament point to God. Um, David is like the best king in the Old Testament. And so when King David is, is the king of Israel, uh, the, the nation of Israel is doing great. Uh, that's, that's their uh, glory days. But when other kings come along, David's predecessors, or David's descendants, uh, they don't like the idea of God being the one that has true authority. And as they try to usurp God's authority, uh, again, chaos kind of happens, right? The people of Israel are taken captive into exile in Assyria and Babylon. And it's during this time when things are really not going well for God's people that God sends them some messengers that have a word of hope. The word of hope that he sends them is that one day there's going to be a king that comes again and makes everything good. It's going to be a king that's better than any king they've ever had. He's going to be faithful and loving. He's going to be just and compassionate. He's going to be the best king and he's going to reestablish a perfect kingdom and everything is going to be good again. One of the places in the Old Testament that we see that, uh, there's a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. And through uh, the prophet Zechariah, God tells them this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, 
Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There's this prophecy, and many like it, that gave the people of God a hope that God was going to do something to repair all of the brokenness, that was going to establish his kingdom on earth. And the key to all of that was that there had to be a king. You know, it's interesting. The Old Testament comes to a close, and the king hasn't come yet. And so it's not a coincidence that the writers of the New Testament and the Holy Spirit speaking through their writings go out of their way to acknowledge that Jesus is the king that God wanted to send. Jesus is the king that God uh, is sending so that everything will be good again. And you know what's interesting about Jesus being king is we don't have to rely on another king who's really a human who's trying to make God first in their life, uh, Jesus is God himself. He's the only one that rightfully should be king. And so we have passages like the triumphal entry, uh, which the song Ride On King Jesus gets its inspiration from the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I want to read a part of that so you can see the imagery of, of, of Jesus being king. And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So you can probably notice there's a connection actually between this passage and the prophecy in Zechariah, right? That it's a fulfillment of a king that's going to come to them riding on a colt. They're pretty neat. I mean, it's very specific that Jesus is obviously the king that was being talked about. But you have this other kingly imagery. You have uh, the crowds that are around them as Jesus is riding this colt into Jerusalem. They're spreading their cloaks out on the road so he can walk over them. They're spreading branches down to show honor. It's the kind of parade that a king and only a king would have had. And then they're shouting these words, Hosanna which means save us. It's the kind of cry that a people would yell out to their king when they needed the the king to rescue them. And then they're saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They're saying, we believe Jesus is the king that God has promised from the line of David, and he's going to make it good like it was when David was king again. That's what the crowds are saying uh, in this parade. What's interesting and and maybe a little disheartening is that uh, this happened on Palm Sunday. And it's really, in the gospel accounts, it's less than a week until Jesus is standing before Pilate on trial. And he asks the crowds, what should I do with Jesus? And it's some of the same people in the crowds who yell, crucify, crucify. What happened to this crowd that... At the beginning of the week, they were celebrating that Jesus was the coming king that they've been waiting for for generations. And by the end of the week, they're giving him up for being executed by the Roman authorities. I think think what happened is it seems like they were willing to proclaim that he was king as long as he was going to do what they really wanted him to do. Now, what they really wanted him to do, they wanted him to oust the Roman occupiers, right? They wanted him to come in and be a military leader and establish a physical kingdom by fighting off the Roman Empire. 
And when they realized that the way of Jesus looked very different than that, it was the way of the cross, I think they said, well, that looks a little uncomfortable. I think I'm going to look, look for salvation somewhere else. You see, at the root of it, I think the crowds were uh, proclaiming that Jesus is king. I don't think they ever made him king of their lives. Because when Jesus becomes king of your lives, you give up what you want so you can have what the king wants. Now, the big question this makes us have to ask ourselves, we're on this journey to hope. Uh, This journey to hope involves making Jesus the king of our lives. So the big question is, how do we make Jesus the king of our lives? Especially for, for us right here. I mean, we just sang songs proclaiming that Jesus is king. How do we not be like the crowd that sang those songs and then later in the week lived however they wanted to live? How do we actually make our lives conform to the songs we have been singing I think Psalm 146 helps us out. Uh, Psalm 146 is a psalm at the end of the book of Psalms. It kind of wraps up part of the book of Psalms. What really drew my attention to Psalm 146 is the last line, verse 10. It has this, uh, this, this saying. It says, the Lord God will be king forever. And then in the body of the psalm, what's really interesting is it, it actually has a, like a teaching section. And so what, what most likely, the way this psalm was used by the people of God in the Old Testament is it was probably used during worship as a hymn, just like we would sing hymns or songs, but it was designed to teach them how to make God their king as they sang the song. So what I would like to do is to read a few of those verses, to let that psalm teach us how do we let God be the king of our lives, so we're going we're gonna to pick it up in verse 3. I recommend, by the way, reading the whole psalm. I think the whole psalm is excellent. Uh, we only have time for a few verses here today. So Psalm 146, uh, starting in verse 3, says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord his God. So I think right off the bat with this psalm, in the first uh, couple verses of the part we're looking at, uh, we see that if Jesus is going to be a king of our lives, we can't have any other kings. And, you know, I don't think it's just talking about princes there or other uh, figures of royalty. I think it's talking about um, uh, human things and, and obviously human plans. I think this psalm, what it's, what it's trying to teach us and the path it's trying to lead us in is uh, the first part of it is that we have to identify what are those things that compete with Jesus in our lives. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know any monarchs. Uh, I have not ever pledged allegiance to a literal king or queen or prince or anything like that. The, the, as far as monarchs go, the, the, the most I know are like Disney princesses that we watch in movies in my house. Um, I don't think it's only talking about uh, people. Uh, I think it's talking about something a little bit deeper. And we can go back and try to figure out, uh, you know, how do we identify what those things are that compete with Jesus? I love how uh, it uses the word trust. Put not your trust in human things. That word trust is different than how we normally think about our faith. And so in our Western context, in our Western minds, we tend to think about our faith in terms of belief, an intellectual assent 
to a system of beliefs or a statement of faith or a creed or a systematic theology. And while those things are useful, uh, that's not the same thing as the word trust here. The trust that's talked about here is more of a, a thing in your heart. It's not as much what's going on in your head. It's more a thing in your heart. The literal word that's used in the Hebrew for trust there, it actually means it's what you get your sense of well-being and security from. It's the thing that you place your confidence in so that you know that no matter whatever else happens, I'm going to be okay because I'm trusting in this thing. So to identify what those things are that compete with Jesus, we ask ourselves this question. What gives me a sense of well-being and security? What do I put my confidence in that gives me a feeling that it's going to be okay no matter what happens? Uh, This is a question we have to ask ourselves and we have to let God help us kind of discover the answer by looking at our hearts. Um, But but I thought maybe uh, I'd help us out a little bit. Um, I don't want to make it multiple choice. I'm going to list some some, some possible things that we typically could put our trust in. Uh, I think there's more than just this. I just think that there's, these are some things that we probably need to think hard about because it's easy for us to do this on autopilot in the day and the age that we live in. So here's some of the things. I think, you know, for some of us, maybe we find our sense of well-being and security in our finances. Maybe it's that the cash flow is in the positive and I have plenty left over to get things that I, that I want Okay, Or maybe it's the idea that I've worked really hard, I've stored up this nest egg, and no matter whatever else happens, uh, I'm going to be okay because I have that saved up. I have that to fall back on. Maybe for some of us it's something different. Maybe it's uh, like a physical sense of security. Uh, We live in the suburbs. Uh, Cedar Park, I think, is one of the safest cities in the U.S., and and yet people in Cedar Park still have alarms in their homes, right? And and, and I'm not not making fun of you if you have an alarm, uh, like... It, I'm just saying, I, sometimes I wonder if we find that to be something we trust in to give us that sense of well-being and security. It's that idea that I could, maybe I could insulate myself from the dangers of the world and protect myself, and then life is good. I wonder, uh, maybe it's not those things. Maybe it's something more like uh, your health or your physical fitness. You know, you work out a few times a week or you I have a trainer that teaches me how to work out and I eat healthy and I take my vitamins and I go to the doctor on time. And it's almost like we can get a false sense of immortality, this feeling that I'm going to beat those sicknesses. But I mean, pe- people probably in this very room could tell you uh, that's not that's not reliable. <laughs> like eventually it's going to let you down if that's your greatest source of trust and security. Right. Many of us have experienced uh, glimpses of that. Maybe for some of us, it's something that's a lot more uh, intangible. Maybe it's more of an ideology that we put our trust in. A cause or, or even a tradition or a political party. And we feel like the, the, you know, the movement of that ideology, when it moves forward and it wins, we feel like life is good and we're safe. And, and things are all right. And when it loses, oh man, stay off of Facebook because I might say something, right? Maybe it's even something different than that. Maybe it's a sense of our status or uh, the power or influence that we have. This feeling that, you know, I've worked hard, I've earned the respect and admiration of people in my field uh, of occupation. And so, uh, so I kind of trust in myself more than anything else. 
or for many of us, it's just this idea that, uh, that often goes along with an American concept of freedom, which is I am the author of my own destiny. I can do what I want, and I can uh, set a goal and achieve it. I can make a plan, and it's my right. And, and, and what I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to say that any of those things are inherently bad, because they're not. But if they take the place of king in your life, that's when uh, Jesus wants to help you point that out because only he is good enough to be our king. So we have to identify those things that compete with Jesus. And then, and this is the hard part, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to tell you this kind of, then we have to surrender those things to Jesus. And so what, what I think this looks like is it looks like coming to Jesus with our hands open and bringing those things to him and saying, Jesus, I really actually like trusting in this instead of you. But I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to move in a different direction. So would you uh, take this stuff? I'm going to give this. I'm going to surrender it to you so that you can be my only king. I think Jesus actually models this for us perfectly uh, in his prayer the night that he's arrested. And he says this, he, he's praying to his, God, to his father. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I love this prayer because Jesus shows us what it looks like to be honest with God. He's, he doesn't try to hide the fact that he's struggling, and he doesn't try to hide the fact that he would love for his plans to work out. God, if there's a way to not go to the cross, please, let's do that, right? That's what he's saying. But then the follow-up prayer is, but God, I am going to let you be king because I'm going to trust in your way over my way. That's what it looks like to surrender, to say, God, I want to surrender this to you. My, my plans, my dreams, uh, the things that make me feel secure and comfortable, I'm going to surrender these to you so that you can be the only one. And then after we surrender those to Jesus, I think, there's, I think there's one, maybe two more steps. Verse 5 of the psalm says this, Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And it paints this picture for us of someone who has uh, gone through a hard time and they have had to trust God. Like they've had to turn to God and say, God, I need you to help me. And what that person has found is that when God helped them, they were incredibly blessed. Man, what a neat thing. I think what this part of the psalm is telling us is that a part of the process of making Jesus king is we have to actually ask God to help when we are in a time of need. And especially in those areas where we tend to trust in ourselves, we like to be our own kings and queens, we like to uh, trust in other things for our security and well-being, I think we have to take those intentionally to God, and after we surrender them, then we say, all right, how can I practically trust God with this part of my life? For my own life, the idea of Jesus being king um, really started to emerge in my college years. I was, uh, I was experiencing a lot of spiritual growth, and just basically God was doing a lot of stuff in my life. I think I read the New Testament my freshman year of college, and it, it just blew my mind. Uh, reading it for myself was, was a big deal for me. And as I started to try to live in the way of Jesus, I also realized that to do that, there were some things that were deeply embedded in my life that I might have to give up. God started to speak to me about those things. He started to convict me. Um, 
he started to show me that my security and sense of well-being was not primarily coming from him, but it was coming from the sense that I had a life plan that was going to be, it was going to lead to my picture of the good life. And if you ask me what that life plan was, uh, it was that um, I was studying civil engineering at the University of Texas. Uh, I was making good grades, and uh, my life plan was that I would continue to succeed in that so I could graduate and succeed in a career so I could have plenty of money so that I could have a life that was healthy, wealthy, and comfortable. That, that was the dream, right? That's the dream that, that most of us have kind of put into our minds by the culture and growing up, and that's, that's what we're taught. The problem was, as I, as I started reading Scripture more, and I found that uh, I saw many faithful men and women in Scripture, but very few of them were healthy, wealthy, and comfortable. And, and that, that was a problem for me. So, well, God, if you're calling me to follow you all the way, but the people that do that the best aren't living the kind of life I'm headed towards, then, then what, do I, what do I do with that? And what God called me to is he said, oh, maybe you need to give up that dream and make your biggest dream uh, Jesus. I like, wow, okay. So I started to do that, and I started to let go of those other things so that Jesus could be my only king. As I began to do that, God uh, really opened my life up to be able to, uh, to respond to him in some, some important ways. For me, and this, this isn't for everyone, and it shouldn't be the same way for everyone. Everyone has their own unique story, and I love that. But, but my story is that God began to call me into ministry. And, and I was so convinced that making Jesus king of my life was a good idea that when I graduated from college at 22, I didn't even bat an eye taking a job in youth ministry for half the pay of, a, of what a civil engineer would have made. And, and I don't say that to, to brag. I'm just saying God was moving in my heart. He was doing some big stuff in me. Now, that was, uh, that was maybe an easy decision to make at age 22. Uh, but five years later, as Tracy and I began our family, uh, I, I had to wrestle with that all over again. And, and what happened for us, we, we had been married five months when we found out we were pregnant with Abigail. And while we were really excited uh, to start a family and have Abigail in our lives, we also were dealing with the reality that Tracy was still finishing her undergraduate degree at Texas State. I was working as an assistant youth minister, and uh, Abigail was, her, the month she was due to be born was the same month that our student loan payments had to start being made. And... What, what happened in me was a crisis. It was a, you know, my engineer mind was still working, saying, oh, there's going to be a problem because I'm not sure the money's going to work out very well. Uh, what are we going to do? How are we going to fix this problem? And then what would happen if we had family life that didn't involve our main goal being healthy, wealthy, and comfortable? I just, I just, I don't think I had thought through that yet, that stage of life. And so as I grappled with this problem, uh, essentially I turned back to all my old ways. I woke up every morning and religiously, I opened my computer, I pulled up my financial spreadsheets, and I tried to find a way to make it work. And after two to three months of trying to shift around different parts of our budget and move money from one account to another, thinking about how could we downsize, could we sell one of our vehicles, could we, what, what could we do so that it all works out, I, I was at a loss. I had to grapple with the reality uh, that Maybe me planning and achieving and working hard wasn't the answer for life. 
Like maybe that wasn't the thing I should put my trust in more than anything else. As I uh, came to a crisis point and brought that to God, uh, God, God showed me what I needed to do. And it wasn't easy. He basically said, yeah, Thomas, it's because you have other things that are in the place of king. And I really want Jesus to be your only king. And so God led me through this process of re-surrendering these same things so that I could trust God more. He led me from uh, waking up and looking at my uh, spreadsheets and playing with all of that to try to make it work out based on my plans to a point where I would wake up in the morning and I would read his word because in it I find God's plan and I see a picture of a God that's always faithful, that's always loving, that's always good. He's the best king. He led me to a place where... uh, I wasn't going to meet all my needs on my own and depend on myself more than anyone else, but he was calling me to depend on him, which doesn't mean ignoring needs. What God had us do was to acknowledge the needs that we had and to bring those to God and to pray for them specifically and to say, God, here's the need that we have and we're going to trust you. Would you be the good provider and give? You know, what was so awesome is that God provided for every need we had. And it was in unexpected ways. And it was probably not the same way I would have done if I was God. There's a reason I'm not God, right? So I I tell you this because it's the way that it's worked out in my life, but also because it's the way it continues to work out in my life. We never really get done with this journey. The last part of it is we have to stay on the journey. Even this week, as I prepared this sermon and was meditating on these scriptures, God convicted me about some ways I need to re, re, re surrender some of these things to Him. I was like, okay, God, yeah, I guess I'm never really done. And I think, you know, He said, yeah, that's kind of the point. You're always going to need me. That's why the psalm is meant to teach people, it's for the faithful who already believe in God and follow God and believe God's king, it's for them to sing during worship so that they can keep teaching them and they can keep going through that process of surrendering themselves once again to Jesus being king. Uh, I want want to leave you with a final picture of Jesus as king. There's there's really two things in the scriptures we looked at today that show uh, how much greater a king he is than any other thing we could put our trust in. You know, different than any worldly leader who at some level might be corrupt and use other people for their own gain, Jesus is a king that is selfless and loves us with a sacrificial love. You know, that week after the triumphal entry, he takes our burdens and goes to the cross with them so that we don't have to because he loves us and he provides for us and he cares for us as our king. And then Jesus is different than the princes that are talked about in this psalm. Those princes, their plans only last as long as their lifetime because when they die, so do their plans. So does their protection, so does their provision. When Jesus dies, he rises again after three days, right? Right? And so, brothers and sisters, this is the hope we're headed towards, the resurrection of Jesus, who is our king, who will always be faithful to us, who is more loving and caring than we could ever hope to or imagine. And the question for us today, as we continue on this journey to hope, is will we be like the crowd who gets together to sing about Jesus being king and then lives in a way that's totally different? 
Or will we allow Jesus to be king of our lives? Will we surrender the competing things that we trust in, the things that, of the world that we look to for security, and will we let Jesus be our source of confidence? Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful that you are such a good king, that you love us so deeply, and that we can trust in your care and compassion for us. We thankful for, we're thankful for your faithfulness, Jesus, uh, that uh, you are eternal, that not even uh, death could keep you bound forever, uh, but we, we have a king who lives forever, and you will be faithful to us forever. And Jesus, we're thankful for your patience with us, that you are understanding when we are not uh, always perfect in this journey, that you uh, just invite us to begin, you invite us to start, you invite us to, to be in this constant place of growing in you. Jesus, we proclaim that we need you today. We need you to be our king, we need you to be our God, we need you to come into our lives. So come and do that here in each of our lives. Give us the courage to identify those things that compete with you so that as we go through this week and continue on the journey into the future, we could surrender them to you and proclaim you as our king. Amen.